Welcome to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen. And on this week's episode, we welcome co-founder and general partner of Better Tomorrow Ventures, Shiel Manat. Shiel and I have a great conversation discussing his journey in and around the tech and venture capital ecosystem and how he made his way over to the Valley after selling his company to Groupon and then working out 500 startups as a fintech investor. Shiel and I also dig into how he started Better Tomorrow Ventures with his co-founder, Jake Gibson, co-founder of NerdWallet, and why he decided to spin out from 500 startups to start his own venture fund and seed it with his own capital. Sheila and I also discuss the power law in venture capital and how he's thinking about exits and returning capital to investors from his $150 million seed fund. Lastly, Sheila and I discuss his amazing experience sleeping at Brian Chesky's house, the founder of Airbnb, and how the authenticity and transparency in what Brian shared with him helped him think about building and investing in companies better. Now let's jump into the tank for this week's episode with Sheila Manat, co-founder and general partner at Better Tomorrow Ventures. But before we get started today, as our listeners probably know by now, the team at Ripple is always focused on helping our founders and portfolio companies find the best partners to work with within the tech and venture capital ecosystem. And that is why we are so excited to announce our partnership with the incredible team at Tories LLP. When it comes to legal support and advice, the team at Tories is the best in class. Tories is a story Canadian law firm with offices in Toronto, Montreal, Calgary, Halifax, and New York City. And Tories has been around since its founding in 1941. They have always worked closely with players across the emerging startup ecosystem in all aspects of the creation, acquisition, and commercialization of businesses. They help founders determine when and how much to fundraise, how to achieve the right economic structure, how to think about board and control issues, and how to successfully navigate different stages of growth. They are also advisors to VC funds, strategic investors, private equity funds, and other institutional investors on fund formation and shareholder arrangements to buyouts and other exits. In fact, Tories recently acted as counsel to Mavericks Private Equity on the transformative 260 million MyoVision Technologies growth funding round with an advisory team that included Danny Asif, Konata Lake, and Max Schwartz label on that investment. So whether you are negotiating a new business arrangement or developing a new service offering, Tories helps clients seize new opportunities and build creative market-leading business models in this fast-paced world we live in every day. So visit Tories.com to learn more. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Shiel. Really happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Before we dive in, I got to say, you've been one of my favorite Twitter followers in the past few years, even though I've only been on the platform for a couple of years, but you've been on it since 2007. So you're only getting spicier by the day. So I appreciate that. <laughs> but before we talk into all the great content that you use to help burn some of my brain cells off, it'd be great if we can dig into some of your uh, background on how you got started first as an entrepreneur with your first few ventures, and then eventually how you made your way into the investing side of the table. So my background in fintech actually starts on the nonprofit side with Kiva. Kiva.org is a website that lets individuals, primarily in the developed world, make loans to individuals in the developing world for the sake of alleviating poverty. It's a nonprofit, but really was my first exposure to startups. The founders of it were early at PayPal and a few other places. And so it was really my first exposure to a lot of things like lifetime value, like cost to acquire a customer, like all these things I had never, or content marketing, like I'd never heard of these things. And that that was in 2006. And uh, so actually for, for Kiva, I moved to India, set up our operations out there. It was a really amazing time. After I, I came back, I went to business school, worked at BCG. And then a buddy of mine from BCG was leaving to start a company called Fee Fighters, asked me to join him. And uh, Fee Fighters was a payments business 
first com- first part of it was a marketplace where merchants give us a few pieces of information and processors bid down for their business. And then we decided to insert ourselves into the marketplace and became a payment gateway plus PSP or PayFAC now, as it's called. And that was similar to what Stripe is today. We got acquired uh, it, at the beginning of 2012 by Groupon for nothing close to what Stripe is today. <laughs> but it was an acquisition that at least, you know, at least gave me a little bit of capital. I started doing some angel investing. And so I'm very thankful for it, even though it was not like really life-changing money or anything like that. After that acquisition, I started doing angel investing, found I really loved it. Ended up starting two other companies along the way. One is a food company called Thistle. We make and sell packaged meals delivered to your door. Um, So on a subscription basis. And the idea was I was not eating healthy at all. And it was really easy to just go downstairs, you know, at at your office and grab whatever's in the cafeteria versus eating something that's healthy and has the macronutrients designed for you. So we uh, started this company called Thistle and it's still going to this day. You know, it's, it's a decent sized business with operations over a thousand employees, operations in the East coast and West coast. I decided a long time ago that it didn't make sense for me to run this business. It's really like a logistics plus operate operations heavy business. And it's just like not my sweet spot, not my forte. So uh, a good friend of mine still runs a business going well today. The other business I started uh, is an auction company and uh, we sell hard to value assets. The, the principal thing that we sold when I was running the company or when I was part of running the company um, was top level domains. So not like tanktalks.com. If you own it, I don't know if you do, but dot talks. So we sold things like dot blog, dot church, dot design, dot group, all these different names we sold. You see them out there in the wild today. If you only had dot AI. So one interesting thing is the, the two letter codes are all country codes. So dot AI, interestingly enough, is Anguilla, um, which is a British territory in the Caribbean. I think they have a population of 15,000. So I'd imagine that selling the domain names is actually like a pretty big part of their GDP now, which is completely wild. Somebody needs to write an article about that if they haven't already. Do they clip like a fee every time .ai is purchased? They transferred? They do, yeah. Oh my God. Someone's got to write a blog post on that. Yeah. Um, And then .fm, we're using Riverside.fm for this podcast. .fm is the Federated States of Micronesia, FM. Oh my God. That is amazing. And then another one is .tv, which is Tuvalu. And .co is Columbia. So all all these .vc is St. Vincent and the Grenadines. All these people just lucked out by what their two-letter code happened to be. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, speaking about all, you know, all over the world, different places, you worked all over the world, as you mentioned, in India with Kiva.org and obviously as a consultant with P- BCG, you know, before joining Fee Fighters in 2010. You know, how did growing up as a global citizen of the world impact the ways you thought about sort of risk-taking and, and betting on yourself? 
you know, I grew up going to India a lot. My parents didn't have like a ton of money, but they were, we would go to India almost every year. And a lot of times they would try to club up some other stopover on the way to India. And that was our vacation. So I remember going to like the Middle East or, or, um, Italy, we, we flew to Alitalia one time and, uh, that would be, those would be our vacations. I feel like you learn a lot just being in a different country, immersing yourself, seeing how other people live, especially at a younger age, you know, like 30 plus years ago, it was, we were a much less global world. You actually didn't know what was going on in different parts of the world as you do today. Like today, the dances everywhere in the world are kind of the same because of YouTube. Um, it was a little bit different back then. And I think, I think that was impactful in my life. I think a more impactful thing was we talked about Kiva. When I moved to India for Kiva, I decided to live like a borrower. So I lived like the people that we served. So I lived on like one or $2 a day uh, for a year. And I think that gave me a real appreciation for what it's like to be poor, really, really poor in the world. And I think it probably has had a lot of profound impacts on my life uh, in ways that I can't even think about. But But one of them is just like, I feel like I really just don't need that much to be happy. Like I was very happy during that year. And I realized that like, you know, in venture capital, you can get completely caught up in a lifestyle that just like is not what makes me happy. So that, that was, a, that was a big learning for me. That's amazing. You know, I remember traveling Europe backpacking by myself for a couple of months after I graduated university, which I think everyone in the world should do if they have the ability to. Totally agree. When you say have the ability to, I think people think travel needs to be very expensive and it doesn't. You learn how to travel efficiently and cheaply, as I'm sure you did. I Yeah, absolutely. I traveled cheaply and I had older brothers to guide me along the way on how to do that. You know, I've always said my goal in life is not to give back to the you know alma mater that I went to, but to set up a foundation to allow graduates of business school who may come out with a lot of student debt to take off two months to travel the world for a year while building their first startup. So they have to build the startup remotely around the world, traveling around, and they have to do it on a budget that we set out for them uh, to show what it's like building and integrating with different cultures. But my point is, is that I did that when I was really young and had no money. And that was one of the happiest moments ever. I went back though, after I left finishing working on Wall Street in New York to travel Southeast Asia by myself, but I had money and I ended up staying in hotels instead of hostels. And I ended up spending you know, money on nicer dinners. And that trip was not as enjoyable as when I was less rich uh, and had uh, nothing to actually eat for dinner sometimes and just had to drink a lot of beer. So I totally agree with you. But, you know, I want to talk about the time you joined Fee Fighters in 2010. So you said it was like the kayak for credit card processing yeah. and was similar to Stripe and Square ahead of its time. Sorry, it didn't work out to be a $95 billion company. Um, but can you tell us about the acquisition by Groupon and how it came to be and, and why you decided to sell? We were, um, first of all, we were based in Chicago, the same city as Groupon. We were out raising a Series A, and it's totally wild what fundraising was like in 2011 compared to what it's like now. I know you had a company around that time, so you, you know. Yeah. But Groupon tried to buy us for $4 million, okay. and you said, go fuck yourself. <laughs> awesome. Yep. You know, fundraising at that time. So in Chicago, especially was just tough. Like there weren't many series A funds that were, that would, that were interested in investing in Chicago. We actually came out to the Bay area to fundraise and 
several of the funds said, you guys need to move out here and we'd love to fund you if you move out here. And for a variety of reasons for, for my co-founders, it, it, it wasn't a good fit for them um, to, to move out. And so we decided, you know, let's, let's see what happens. We ended up having, I think we had some, some other offers out there, but Groupon had us come in and said, we'd love to just chat. So we chatted with them. We were not interested in an acquisition. We were interested in getting them as a customer. And that was how we led into it. And then over time, they wanted us to meet more of the team. And I think being naive, we weren't really sure. We were just like, yeah, we'll meet more of the team. We'll try to, we'll convince them to become customers. And then over time, they said, hey, like, we'd love to become a customer, but we'd really love to acquire you. And over the course of a three-month period, we came to terms. Originally, they had offered us something pretty shitty, maybe in the four to $5 million range. And, you know, over the course of that time, all stock. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, over the course of that time, we came to, uh, to a better deal, but it wasn't nothing, nothing crazy. Yeah. I think we got the exact same term sheet actually. So probably, probably just crossed out your probably, name and sent it to us. Uh, and we eventually sold to a Yelp for about uh, six times more, but nonetheless, it obviously worked out because you had a great, you know, a great career there, right? You were, you know, VP of business development. Like what other kind of learnings did you get from working within the, you know, the group on team and uh, what other deals did you get to see? At that point, it was already a decent sized company, still kind of operating as a startup still kind of riding the highs with like, you know, it was, it was still, but at the time we got acquired one of the hottest companies out there, I think $20 billion public valuation, Mark Andreessen, a bunch of other folks were coming into the office regularly. 11 months after we got acquired, there was a boardroom struggle and the CEO got ousted, Andrew Mason. And it was interesting to see how the world changed after this like young energetic CEO got replaced by who was the chairman, Eric. And he was more of a private equity guy. And at the time that Andrew was there, we were still, things weren't always working, but we were trying to create new stuff. There was investment in R and D. And then when he left, it really just like, it was like, let's squeeze this thing for all we got. It, you know, it was, it was a different time. And I think a lot of the, a lot of the good talent left. And I I think I just learned a lot about acquisitions. We actually, our team came to Groupon and acquired a bunch of other companies that I I was part of that process. I was also part of an interesting process where, um, so part of my responsibilities were like checkout into Groupon. And at the time, you know, it was billions of dollars of e-commerce. So people wanted to be in that checkout flow we struck an amazing deal with Amex. So Amex wanted to do a co-branded card, a Groupon card powered by Amex. And we were like, why would we partner with Amex? Like clearly Visa or MasterCard's more our style. Anyway, we, we ended up negotiating quite a bit with, with all the parties and got just this insane deal from Amex where they paid us a ton of money upfront In the end, I got to see the big corporate world of like, they paid us a bunch of money up front. And then over the course of the next year, the people who were leading that project left. And then we ended up not having to do anything (laughs) for them. But we just got this tremendous amount of money paid up front. 
Um, and I just saw a little bit about like the world of big corporates. Yeah. I was going to say like that buy versus build mentality when they want to buy and they want to buy up front. Oh my God. That's an incredible negotiation skill that you got to witness. And then obviously saw kind of whittle away. But man, oh man, that must have been incredible to have a front row seat to that. But that wasn't the only acquisition you were a part of. You know, you were super early on the podcast train when you launched the Pitch Podcast as the Shark Tank for startups, which eventually sold to Gimlet Media and then to Spotify. You know, what was that journey like? And how did selling impact your views on how the podcast industry was being valued by large media brands and, and everyone else? Okay, so we started in my house and then my office. And then I think the first 55 episodes were just like me and an entrepreneur. And then we changed it up and it became this panel a lot more like Shark Tank. And when we started, I had actually reached out to Gimlet Media through some connections uh, through BCG. They, you know, I'd been listening to their part podcast called Startup and it, it was, I was addicted to it. It was awesome to hear how they built their own business. And I thought maybe they'd be interested in working with us. So I had sent them an email early on and then they never responded. I think two years later, as our podcast started to pick up steam, Apple featured us at the top banner in the podcast app. So this was January of 2017. If you opened up the podcast app, you would see a picture of me and my co-founder. That's cool. It was wild. I have all these screenshots on my phone. Like if when I'm scrolling through my phone, I look and there's just like 50 screenshots of like our ranking in the business category, our ranking overall, like all this stuff. I, I don't remember. I think we got to, we got to like the top business podcast or one of the top business podcasts. And we broke like top 20 podcasts overall for a very, very, very short amount of time to be clear, because it's based on like how, how fast the rise is. But that caught Gimlet's eye once again. And they reached out to us and said, Hey, we've been listening to your podcast. We like, we like how things are trending. Maybe we should, we should partner up. And at that point it made a lot of sense. So I was never full-time on the podcast. I was full-time investing. My uh, co-host Josh was full-time on the podcast. And so it really made a lot of sense for him. We were bringing in a decent amount of revenue just from sponsorships, but Getting sponsors for podcasts is not very easy. So it was a lot of like me extending personal relationships to get these sponsorships. And then like being part of Gimlet was very appealing. Having a team around us, we eventually had a team of five working on our podcast. That was really cool. That's amazing. And then what happened though, after you sold, what, how, like your involvement and then how Spotify came along and bought Gimlet, did you have to have anything to do with that? We had nothing to do with Spotify buying Gimlet. We didn't know it was happening until after it happened or until it happened. My involvement after we sold changed because Gimlet Media is based in Brooklyn. I'm in San Francisco and they wanted us to record all the podcasts at Gimlet. I said, hey, this podcast, when I started the podcast, I was an angel investor investing in anything. I since then refined to only investing in fintech. And so like the podcast, which is a generalist podcast, didn't really make sense for me. I think I achieved what I wanted out of it, which was like building my own brand. You know, to be honest, the folks that were coming on the podcast were probably more entrepreneurs, like less, less like great companies on the podcast that I actually wanted to invest in. 
So I decided to lessen my involvement and still come out there and still record episodes. But I think I was on about half of the episodes after that. And then Spotify acquired Gimlet. Initially, it was pretty good. Business as usual with a little bit more capital. They sent us uh, Spotify sneakers, which I still have. They say they're like these really cool New Balance shoes that say like .mp3 on the back. During the pandemic, we got canceled by Spotify. (laughs) Um, we actually didn't grow that much after the acquisition. Like we were on a great upward trajectory. I think they thought we would be a great compliment. So Gimlet said we'd be a great compliment to the startup podcast. So we did grow from there, but I don't think we grew enough. Clearly we didn't grow enough for Spotify. So, uh, we got canceled, you know, a year and a half ago or something like that. And then Josh actually, uh, took it out of Spotify and is running it again. Oh, that's pretty cool. I love those stories. You know, is that where you got a lot of your angel opportunities presented to you that you invested in? No, I I, I did get some from the podcast, but mostly it was, I would say like being in San Francisco. So I moved here after the acquisition uh, of Fee Fighters in, in 2012. And I think moving out here, I it was like, oh my God, I was exposed to so much that I had not been exposed to before. I think Chicago was a small startup city. Groupon was was a big hit at the time. Uh, there were some folks starting up, but like moving out here, I would just bump into people I'd read about. And that's sort of how some of my early investments came to be. I met uh, the CEO of Flexport, Ryan Peterson, because he had met my then roommate at a party. And then we started become we started being friends and I was like, hey, I love whatever you're doing. Like, I'm going to invest in your company. I didn't really know much about angel investing at the time, but I angel invested in Flexport, a bunch of other companies that worked out. I invested in kind of just through osmosis of being in San Francisco at that time. Wow. I love that. You know, the transition from fintech operator to angel investor investing in Flexport and then over to eventually VC must have been a pretty interesting journey and transition. Can you talk to us about your early days as a 500 fintech investor and maybe some of the challenges you face as you try to move up the stack from angel to eventual VC? So I had a stepping stone, which was 500 fintech. So 500 Startups is, or I think it's called 500 Global now, is a uh, accelerator program plus fund. And they were investors in my first company. And so I knew them and they asked me to join. Living in San Francisco, I would run into them from place to place. And then eventually they said, hey, like, you know, we're looking for somebody. Why don't you join us? I originally said, I'm not, this isn't that interesting to me, but let me just do it for a few months. So I came on to mentor a cohort of companies in the accelerator and found that I loved it. Just like working with companies at the earliest stages is just something I love to do. And then we decided, we came to an agreement with 500 that I would, we would start up a a fintech focused accelerator. I would put up half of the capital. Originally it was me, my own capital, and they would put up half the capital that became the 500 fintech fund. And that fund was super successful. It w- what was not successful was fundraising. It was very difficult for me to fundraise. It took me about 18 months to do the, to, to raise the fund. And like I said, I put up all the capital to get started and I had funded, I think 30 companies before we ended up or, or 30, 30 investment rounds, not 30 companies before we ended up 
uh, raising external capital. And I rolled all of that, including markups, into the fund at cost, uh, which I think helped helped uh, raise the fund because there were at that point pretty significant markups. That's funny. I did the exact same thing with our fund one. I bootstrapped fund one with my capital and made it investments at cost, even though they were marked up and rolled them in at cost as my LP commitment to the fund. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's interesting. People don't realize, I think people have this vision of VCs, a VC, a VC life, especially if you run your own fund as being this very glamorous thing, but actually like, no, it cost me money for several years to be a VC. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And the funny thing, the first company I rolled in, we exited and we sold to Warburg Pincus recently and I left millions on the table as an angel because it was spread out across the fund. But again, who's to say if this would have even been here if it wasn't for that. So I can't even think about that, but talk to us about like the actual capital that you put up front. And then what were the conversations like with those LPs when you explain that to them, you're rolling in at a cost and you were putting up the money up front, like did it break down the barrier at least, or did it still take a little bit more punching up to get through the, those LPs? Yeah, it, it broke down the barrier a little bit. I think just being taken seriously as a first time manager is something that, that is tough. And so to say, I've already invested in this portfolio. Here it is. Here's who, here's a bunch of great funds that have marked up that portfolio already. So if you want to be a part of this, you get these companies at cost. Um, that was, I think, pretty compelling. It ended up being even more compelling than we could have imagined because we ended up having an exit that returned uh, a lot of the fund soon after we took in capital. So uh, I think to your point, it would have been awesome for me if, I, if we hadn't raised yeah, exactly. capital. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know. But you can't look back, Joe. You can't, you look, can't back. look back. So can you give us a sense? What was the total size of the fund when you finished fundraising? $15 million. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Small. I think a small first fund. I had put in the first. I had, I had invested a, a few million dollars, which, which uh, you know, is a lot of money to me. So. Yep. Absolutely. You got to put it up though, if you have it to show your, you got skin in the game and it obviously worked, but you, yeah, as you say, millions could have been returned to you personally versus spread out across all the LPs. Exactly. But it got you to start better to more ventures, didn't it? Exactly. So, um, so that was, that was 2017. We, we did, we closed the 15 million in May of 2017. In 2018, I would say like a bunch of other funds started reaching out to me about joining them. 2018, 2019, I interviewed with a bunch of other funds thinking like, maybe I'll just do this one fund with 500 startups and then go off on my own. I ended up deciding that none of those funds were a good fit for me. Either either they decided for me or I decided. Both, both things happened. And Jake, who's my partner today, um, he was an EIR in 500 FinTech. He had, um, he'd started NerdWallet, sort of well-respected FinTech company. And he helped me out a lot when I was getting started. Uh, he was an LP in the fund. He brought in other LPs helped me choose companies. In 2019, he and I just sat together and said, maybe we should go into business together and start a fund together. And the impetus to actually do it didn't happen until towards the end of the year, we decided to commit to leading our first deal. And we committed to leading an investment in a company called Unit, a banking and service company, 
uh, before we even had a fund set up. We still didn't really have a fund name. We didn't have a PowerPoint deck or anything. We decided to, all right, let's let's lead this. Let's lead around into this company. We'll figure out how to get the money into them, et cetera, afterwards. It took us a few months uh, to to raise enough that we could we could fund this one company. You didn't even have like the the entity set up. It was just Jake no. and Shield, basically. We did not have it. an entity. We didn't have we didn't have anything. Yeah, we had, we hadn't asked a single person for money. Oh my god, I lo- that's like some of our first pre seed companies. When we give them the first check, they're like, "Oh, we don't have a bank account to put this in yet." <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was the other way around. It was like we're gonna we're gonna lead you around, but we don't have any money. <laughs> but we, we sort of that. said, "Hey, like if it comes to it, we will personally put up the money." You know, and then yeah, of course. Fortunately, of course. fortunately, they waited a few months, and fortunately, we were able to raise that first that first close we did was uh, around twenty million bucks in December of 2019. And then we funded that company. You know, the 20 million bucks, it actually was not that difficult to raise. You know, we had a previous fund or I I had a previous fund that was performing pretty well. I had a bunch of LPs from that fund who came back in. And I think by that point, we had enough of a reputation in the fintech world that other fintech VCs were interested in, in investing. Other fintech VCs and founders and other folks sort of in the ecosystem were inv- interested in investing. So that first close was fairly easy. It did not mean that the rest of the fundraise would be easy. Hey, but still, you got the first close done. I mean, I got to ask though, 500 Vintech fund was fully deployed, I assume, but did you still have to manage it on the side? I, assume I still am a- managing it. Yeah. yeah so, you still am managing it. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I still, yeah, just before this call started, I had a call with, with the founder from 500 Vintech. So still, it still takes a lot of work. And I think people don't realize how much of an ongoing effort it is that like seven years after I first invested in these companies, I'm still talking to them on a very regular basis. Some of them, some of the companies I invested in beginning of 2016, I'm talking to probably every other week still today. Yeah. That that was going to be my question. Like how does your role or how has your role as a fund manager evolved from the beginning as an angel investor to 500 FinTech to now running, you know, BTV, how has that fund manager uh, experience changed? I think it's, it is very different. So as an angel investor, I was writing 25K checks for the most part, maybe occasionally 50K in, into companies. And you're kind of like asking for an allocation. It's almost like they're doing you a favor to a certain extent. You can help out a little bit from time to time, but they don't come to you for help because they have other investors who have more skin in the game. In some cases, they did come to me for help, like a, a non, let's say Flexport, for example, as they expanded from freight forwarding into more financial services, they said, hey, will you come do a workshop for our team? Stuff like that does happen, but it's not like, it's not like you have that many obligations to the company. It was very different at 500 FinTech running the accelerator program. We were super hands-on with these companies. So I was spending, you know, these companies were working out of our office. I was with these companies every day, sort of solving problems as they came up, helping with recruiting, helping with strategy, helping with partnerships, helping with go to market. And I have a strong affinity to these companies. I love these guys. These are like my kids. So to this, to this day, I do a, like work with these companies all the time, you know, although it was not a lead investment, like a multi-million dollar investment leading a seed round. It was kind of a lead investment, you know, and in that they're, they're taking your capital uh, at a lower price 
to work with you. You know, they, they work with you quite closely. So it was a step in between being an angel and leading around, but I was very hands-on in these companies. Yeah. You know, it's interesting though, Shio, but like you say, because people have more skin in the game, they get the first call. I actually find the opposite because we're not there necessarily as largest investor, but we've been there from the very beginning and we don't have as much skin in the game. We actually get more authentic conversations with the founders um, because we know the history and because we don't have a bias to talk our own stake. I totally agree. I, I think um, one thing that's super rewarding that you probably find as well is how much value people give to the first person that really believed in them. It It is amazing the thing that these, the things that these founders will do for us just because we're the first to believe in them. And yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's less about size of check, more about being there early and being on the founder's side. They know they can reach out to you and say stuff that they might not be able to say to their other investors. Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm, I'm on a board of a series B company that I don't consider to be like a very large position for the company or for us. And they're like, we still want you on the board because we value a lot of what you've been through with us versus let's say our series A lead who's no longer on the board. And I was like, okay, I mean, if that's how you feel, then I can see that. But on the surface, no one would make this to look common sense. I think our ethos is probably similar to what it was then though, even though we now are typically the largest investor in, in each of these companies. I think we are very much, first of all, we're usually the first check. We're almost always at least in the first round, if, if not the first check. I would say we like genuinely try to be on the founder side. We have a very founder founder ethos. Like we are founders ourselves, myself, Jake, sort of the rest of the team is all founder operators. People come to us with all sorts of stuff. I had a founder uh, call me a few days ago. It was like Sunday and a founder just started crying on the phone. And it was just like companies going through a really tough time. His whole identity is wrapped up into this company. And sometimes you can just be a therapist or kind of a shoulder. I don't think I necessarily had anything that valuable to say, but just, I think being there helps. That role is something I love. Like I, I love the fact that, that he thought to call me when he was just going through a tough personal, personal time. Yeah. I, I can't tell you how many founders have shut down businesses that we've had to be the last person they can call because everyone else has turned their backs on them and what that means for the relationship. Obviously, you know, you got the the Twitter accounts like VCs congratulating themselves who, when people tweet these stories out and then everyone ship post on them, but they are real human stories that you and I know firsthand, but we don't have to tweet about it. We just know that they happen and they have a, a, a lasting impact on the relationships with founders. But I got to ask you, Shil, like, who do you look up to in the VC world? Uh, given, you know, you've been around the community for a while who kind of speak the same language as you when it comes to hands-on operating, leading in and being there when shit hits the fan. First of all, this is a trick question because anyone I name, I'm going to leave out so many other great folks. You know, there's, there's certainly funds and investors I look up to. Benchmark obviously has consistently had great returns. Bulgarly and others there are, are, are amazing. I learned from a lot of folks in the boardrooms I'm in, I've, I've just learned that the experience is very valuable. A lot of the folks that have been in venture through the last 
two or three cycles told us a year and a half ago, two years ago, Hey, this isn't going to last. Like we better, (laughs) we better buckle up. This is kind of the end or, you know, people told us in the SVB crisis, how things would end. I think I've just learned a lot from other folks in the boardroom. I can think of specific names, but I'm wary because I can think of a few names, but I've only had so many others. Don't worry about naming names. Okay, fine. How about this? I heard you on the 20 VC podcast with Harry Stebbings uh, about how you disagreed with Harry's viewpoint that venture capital is becoming less collaborative. I don't agree with him. I agree with you that's more collaborative, but can you explain, uh, expand on your thesis here? In every single deal we do, we work with other other folks. There's so many other funds, smaller funds that bring us in. We love working with them. I, I do think ownership requirements at seed and sort of every round have actually gone down over the past like 20 years. It used to be that com- that VC funds needed to own 20% and now now it's lower. So I think there's more opportunity for collaboration. In the last year though, probably... Uh, we and other funds are a little less collaborative as you realize, like you have this huge success and you don't own that much of it. It sort of ends up that a lot of seed funds have higher ownership requirements than they did a year or two ago. Yeah. I mean, that's why I was trying to go earlier and earlier, but speaking of ownership, you know, what are your thoughts on these multi-stage funds taking single digit ownership who are now selling off those stakes individually as they're facing the music? Yeah, it's weird. I never understood why these... Uh, and are you talking about companies that took single digits late or... Yes. Yeah, it's interesting. I think there's a lot of funds who are really like playing the like asset allocation game, just like dropping money into a bunch of different things. Not true partners. I think... We like to think of it as when we work with a company, we partner with the company. I think for them, it's much more of a asset allocation game. And the thing that's tricky about venture is you can't invest in anything. Like the asset has to choose you. So for a while, some of these players were getting chosen, even though they weren't necessarily adding value. And now I think the tables have turned and... They're sort of that style of investing is out of favor. So I'll tell you what I think is happening. I think someone who invests 30 million on a $300 million round at a $3 billion valuation who buys 1% of a company is doing that to put their flag in the ground and create a honeypot to get other startups to call them first when they're raising their next round that hopefully is at an earlier stage where they can buy meaningful ownership. So I think there's some of that happening, but that is easy to see through, right? Like if you- (laughs) No, I just called it out and I'm not doing it. But I'm just like, that's the only logic. But but I'd say like, like if if you're an early stage startup, you should ask them to introduce you to their portfolio. Of course. And we always do that. Anyone on our website- our founders can, we, we happy to introduce them. People, I agree with you. There are people that sort of buy logos. I don't think it necessarily serves them that well in the long run. I think you're burning money. I I truly think you're burning money. I mean, and, and that's just not a good way of returning cash back on multiples to your investors. You know, speaking of cash back, you know, can you explain sort of how you think about the power law and sort of like taking your TVPI and trying to get it into DPI as the cycle starts to turn here? It's such a good question. And something that I had read so much about 
But honestly, there's something about seeing it in my portfolio that's made it click for me in a very different way than what I'd read about. If I can change the impact of my top performing company by 1% or half percent, it has so much impact on the overall fund performance. It's crazy uh, as compared to to uh, a bottom performing company exiting and, and returning one or two X. But, you know, of course you still earn your reputation by helping the bottom com- bottom performing companies. And we actually, when folks asked for introductions to our portfolio, when, when founders asked for introductions, we try to introduce them to our stars, sort of like series CD companies as sort of a mid-range and then a company that didn't work out. You know, founders should always ask for that because like I said, that's how you earn your reputation. Um, but but the power law is interesting. I'd say in, in my 500 FinTech fund, I have 80 portfolio companies. It's a large portfolio company, uh, large uh, strategy. There are five companies that are at least half of the fund in uh, return, at least half of the fund. And then the top one or two return many multiples of the fund. You know, you realize that you have a a company that sells for $50 million and that's an awesome return for a founder, but it actually like doesn't really move a needle for a fund. And if I think about that, that from a BTV perspective, our you know our, the fund that we're the seed fund that we're investing out of now is 150 million dollars. You know, a 200 million dollar exit is awesome for a founder. Incredibly life changing amount of money. Now, for our fund, let's say we own 15 percent to start, and then at exit we own 10 percent. So that's 20 million dollars. 20 million dollars on a 150 million dollar fund is just like not that much. We're of course happy for the for the outcome, but just like in terms of moving the needle for a fund, if you think about where we want our fund to be is a let's say a three plus X fund. So we need to return 500 million. So you know a 200 million dollar exit, 20 million return to the to the fund is actually only four percent of the the ultimate outcomes that we need. Yeah. I mean it's really hard and I think that determines also probably the size of funds you would raise given the stage of investment you make, correct? That's right. So um, I sort of believe you can get way too big and it becomes very difficult to return these funds. So these like, there are a bunch of, you know, five plus billion dollar funds out there. If you just do the mental math on what's required to get, let's say, let's say they own 10% at outcome. Let's say they own 15% at exit and you're talking about a $10 billion fund. Just to return principle they would need $70 billion of exits. And so to have a 3X fund, they would need over $200 billion of exits. And like, where are these exits coming from? I don't... The metaverse. Know. They're coming from the metaverse. They're coming from the metaverse. I guess so. Yeah, it's the only way it happens. Yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, two, two things. We can talk about this forever. Uh, you obviously had some misses in your portfolio or not in your portfolio, like Robinhood and Chime. Uh, can you explain quickly like how those shaped your views on investing moving forward and what lessons you learned from those? I think that the number one lesson is just because something similar did not work in the past doesn't mean that it's not going to work. So in the case, uh, in both of those are, are great cases of that. So at Chime, we at 500 Startups had invested in a company called Simple that was uh, a neobank and a neobank for consumers. And growing this thing was very difficult. And they ended up selling, uh, they ended up having a decent outcome, sold for $120 million to be BBVA. 
but it was not a crazy outcome. And BBV ended up marking it down and ultimately sold. I thought it would be difficult for Chime. Now, what I had missed on Chime was a couple things. One, they are getting people paid early, which is really something people want to do. And they're reaching a different demographic that was completely underserved. They were not reaching like the tech demographic. They were reaching this like completely underserved market. Robinhood, you know, there've been other companies that had low cost or free trading, but Robinhood put it in a delightful experience in an app and that made all the world, made all the difference. So you had to basically say is like, forget the past. Don't sort of look uh, around your immediate circle of like experiences and say, this is what you know, happened in the past. Therefore, it's going to probably happen in the future. Expand your mind a little bit and think like, but what if this little tweak happens? How much more of a success will, will they have? Is kind of what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, got to move to a fun note question. One, you stayed with Brian Chesky at Airbnb. Look freaking awesome. Tell us quickly, like, you know, what were the coolest things? Obviously, you know, you're both tech people. He's got a cute golden retriever. So do I, you know, that would have been amazing just to have that. He was just like, such a great guy and such an open book about Airbnb, the struggles, the, the like day-to-day of what he does uh, today. He was just a completely an open book. There's nothing that I asked him that he did not answer in a straightforward manner. And we were up late. Like we, we had dinner, we made dessert together. We made uh, Chesky's chips, his cookies. And then we, we stayed up late just talking about the business. And then on Sunday, when it was time to check out, we actually stayed several hours late chatting on the couch before we were leaving. He, he was a great host. I'd say like from a business perspective, it was really interesting. The, the one, one big learning that might be useful is just thinking about how when Airbnb shrunk a lot during the pandemic in terms of people, they had to at the beginning of the pandemic, travel stopped and they decided they're going to cut a lot of burn. Uh, they did so before a lot of other companies, you know, sort of after pandemic, a lot of companies cut burn in, in 2022, Airbnb was forced to do it early. But what was remarkable was Brian talking about how he's so much energized after cutting out the fat and like a leaner team is way more efficient and better. I think people struggle to understand that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he did it before Elon had to do it at Twitter, totally. uh, probably in a more charismatic way, yeah. uh, but a personal feelings towards it. But yeah, unbelievable experience. It was so cool to watch through a lens of your view, talking about your experience, hanging out with Brian and his dog with your wife. All right. Before we wrap things up, we always ask our guests for their fast favorites. So first off, your favorite podcast. My favorite podcast that I listen to regularly is Acquired. I just love the depth they go into these businesses. It's it's a really good one. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Did you obviously watch the benchmark dinner one? That was a great one. Oh yeah, it was so good. You had to watch that one on YouTube though, for sure. Uh, next is your favorite newsletter or blog? Yeah, so I've been an avid reader of Marginal Revolution for a very long time, probably 15, 15 years. Uh, it's a blog by uh, George Mason University economist, Tyler Cowen and others. And uh, I just find it fascinating. I'm a armchair economist, so I love that. I think you got to be if you're going to be a fintech investor. Totally. They're so tied. Uh, favorite tech gadget? I mean, I definitely use my AirPods and iPhone all the time, but uh, I'm going to say something a little bit unique, maybe less tech, but still a gadget. Um, bidet. I'm a big bidet guy. You got to get water in there. 
Oh, super off the mark, but sometimes on the mark, if you know what I'm saying. Favorite new trend? You know, I'd be curious how many of your guests don't say AI. It's it's so cliche, but actually, it's so exciting. Like, there's so many exciting things I learn about every day. So I'm going to say AI. This entire podcast script was written by AI, so you got to say that one. Next is your favorite book? Ender's Game. Um, as a kid, I just love this book and, and I've continued to love it to this day. Very unfortunate that the movie was not good, so there probably won't be sequels, but it's a series of books that I've loved. It's a science fiction by Russell Scott Card. And last but not least, your favorite life lesson? There's a quote I have on my blog that I think is a good lesson, which is, People don't want to do new things if they think they're going to be bad at them or people are going to laugh at them. You have to be willing to subject yourself to failure, to be bad, to fall on your head and do it again and try stuff that you've never done in order to be the best that you can be. And I think I live that motto. I am not afraid of being embarrassed or doing the wrong thing or, or, or failing you know, it's, it's something I live by. And, and uh, by the way, that, that quote is by Laird Hamilton, uh, who's, who's uh, a great surfer. Yeah, absolutely. I can tell why your Twitter takes are so spicy now, because you know, you can be failing and still succeeding uh, if they don't hit the mark. So I say the dumbest thing sometimes. <laughs> Thanks for joining us in the tank today. Thanks so much, Matt. Thanks for listening to another episode of Tank Talks. To learn more about this episode, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to find more detailed notes on this episode or to check out previous episodes. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and a rating as it helps us out a lot. And hit that subscribe button so you can get notified when new episodes come out. Finally, make sure to give me a follow on Twitter at Matty B. Cohen or at Tank Talk Podcast to stay up to date on new episodes or to be a guest on our show. Till next time, 